Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. In today's episode, what do fishes and natural resource management have to do with social protection? 2022 is the UN's International Year of Artisanal Fisheries and Aquaculture, and today we'll dive deep on the dual roles of social protection in covering vulnerable fishers and fish workers and in managing the fisheries that provide their livelihoods. As fishers face increasing risks due to climate change, it's an example of the potential for social protection measures to contribute to environmental as well as social and economic sustainability. With me today, I have Daniela Kalikowski and Daniela Salazar, both fisheries officers at FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, and Sebastian Matthew, who is executive director of the International Collective in Support of Fish Workers, the ICSF. We are very, yeah, looking forward to this to this podcast. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Really appreciate putting this talk together. Sebastian, can I start with you? What challenges do informal workers in the fisheries and aquaculture sectors face? What are the vulnerabilities that are particular to this sector? Yeah, thanks, to I mean, if you look at the fisheries sector from an employment perspective, you can see that most of the fishers are in the informal sector. Maybe 90% of fishers are in the small scale. And if you take 90% of the 90%, they would be probably in the informal sector. When we say informal, we mean those who are not documented, those who are probably in a more fluid state. They may come in, they may go out, they may migrate. If you look at, say, West Africa, for example, you will see many fishers combining a bit of farming and fishing. In Southeast Asia also, you see that combination of fishing and farming. But in South Asia, I, I would say, by and large, fishers are only fishing because they don't own any land or they occupy land which is very marginalized, degraded kind of land where there is not enough access to freshwater resources. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. And uh, uh, greater the poverty, I would say that more the dependence on only fishing, not on agriculture livelihood. Unlike in farming sector, you might see that farmers are consuming bulk of their produce and selling only a, a fraction of their produce to the market. Fishers are keeping fraction of their produce and selling bulk of their production to the market. So therefore, they are very much dependent on the market. So I think that's a very important distinction we have to keep in mind when we compare farmers and fishers. Fishers are very much dependent on market. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of pressures on these people. Most of them do not have any rights to the land or to the sea. So therefore, they are very much at the mercy of the state regimes or at the mercy of other sectors like tourism or oil and gas or wind farms. And there's so many other kinds of developments along the, along the shore or at sea, which are squeezing their access to their resources. Uh, and then, on the other hand, you also have changes related to extreme weather events. You see that there are more cyclones, typhoons, uh, sea surges, erosion along the seaboard. So therefore, they're also facing all kinds of uh, nature-driven fury, which compromises their access to resources. And that, in turn, also affects their access to market. We, we also need to consider the fact that the human rights of these people are often taken for granted. So therefore, there is no proper emphasis on their access to education, health, sanitation, housing, energy, access to justice and uh, violence in the community, corruption. So many issues are facing these people in, in many contexts. 
So I think these all need to be properly addressed. And then I would say that even the situations that happened since 2019, like the COVID-19 situation, which uh, although it didn't affect that much their access to resources, it really affected their access to market because a lot of disruptions on the demand side. If I can jump in, perhaps also to mention all oh, the importance of women within the sector, no? And, and in fact, I think uh, most of the women take part of, well, they, are, they represent almost half of the population involved in fisheries, and they are quite invisible, no? They are, in many cases, actually involved in the post-harvest sector, in processing the fish, selling the fish. So that is also a very important, I think, note in terms of advocacy you know, of the importance of the gender issue within the fisheries sector. This year is the International Year of Artisanal Fisheries and Aquaculture. The acronym is IAFA. The Food and Agriculture Organization is the lead agency on behalf of the UN. So I'd like to turn to Daniela and Daniela to get a bit of a sense of how social protection fits in with the actions outlined for this International Year. Many thanks, Joanne. So, so social protection is one of the pillars of the IAFA 2022. And in fact, one of the chapters of the voluntary guidelines for securing small-scale fisheries in the context of food security and poverty eradication, or the SSF guidelines in short, no? which actually calls for social development, employment, and decent work of small-scale a fishing community so they can enjoy their human rights, as Sebastian has mentioned before, no? including the right to the adequate access to social protection. No? So the overall expected outcomes of the IAFA would fall into basically four categories. One, one of them being the importance of raising awareness of the importance of social protection in terms of the expansion of social protection into the sector, no? either being access to the universal social protection schemes or access to sectoral social protection no? for food security, poverty reduction, and sustainability of fisheries. Then focusing on the coherence no? between uh, fisheries policies and social protection policies, because this is one actually the barriers, no? is, is because the ministries of fisheries and agriculture, they tend to focus on the production and related environmental issues and have a limited understanding you know, in terms of the benefits that social protection may have. And while the ministries of social affairs or labor tend to prioritize the poor and vulnerable and do not consider necessarily the environmental sustainability aspects as part of their main agenda. So therefore bringing it together is actually key in terms of advancing the fisheries uh, management as well as the social protection in the fisheries sector. I think something that is very important to raise is that YAFA has an action plan, which has seven main pillars. So we're talking about environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, social sustainability, governance, gender equality and equity, food security and nutrition, and resilience. And I think what's really important is that when we talk about social protection, social protection can actually contribute to each and every single one of these pillars. So for instance, when we talk about the environmental sustainability pillar, right? We can use social protection programs like unemployment benefits 
to encourage compliance by targeting fishers during closed seasons and helping them comply with that by addressing their roots, such as poverty or food insecurity. We also see how social protection programs, for instance, can generate economic and productive inclusion of fishers, particularly of women, like Daniela was mentioning before. We've seen that social protection can empower women, can drift into household dynamics. We have a project with FAO on Colombia working with women in the post-harvest sector. These are what we call the platoneras. And we've seen that through capacity building and through helping them access markets through public procurement processes, there's evidence of how social protection can support, for instance, women in the post-harvest sector to utilize sustainably caught bycatch to process it and use it for food security and nutrition purposes. No, this would not only generate a local income for them that otherwise could be discarded, but also it is reducing food loss and waste. And finally, with resilience, how do we help fishers with social protection better adapt and prepare for uh, for different shocks? So let's say, for instance, a typhoon is coming, how does that can trigger a benefit, a cash transfer, a shelter, something along those lines that help them better adapt? Great to hear some really concrete examples of how social protection could be contributing to some of these objectives. Speaking of examples, Daniela, the team at FAO has worked with IPCIG to look at Brazil's experience of extending social protection insurance to fishers to support sustainable natural resource management. Can you tell us a little bit about how that program worked and what the impacts have been? As you know, there are also a lot of myths around social protection, and then building the evidence on the impact of social protection on the social aspects, on the local economy, on the sustainability of resources is really important. So together with IPCIG, FAO, and also the Secretary of Fisheries and Aquaculture in Brazil, we really looked at the first ever impact evaluation of the Brazilian Seguro Defeso or the Unemployment Insurance for Artisanal Fishers program, which is one of the biggest programs in fishers around the world. And this program really represents an important recognition that fishers, when prevented from fishing for conservation purposes, are compensated through cash for the income lost during the closed fishing season. So the results from the impact evaluation show how this type of social protection, when combined with fisheries management measures, has the potential to reach the dual goals of sustainability of fisheries as well as the well-being of the fishing community. So for each month of the defeso or the closed season, you have to be registered uh, as a fisher in order to be able to receive this amount, which is the equivalent of a minimum wage. It was possible for us to assess the socioeconomic conditions of the beneficiaries and their families. So specifically, the longer the exposure of the program, the higher the percentage of children enrolled in school and the lower percentage of adults, young adults that are simultaneously out of school and work. The the results also show that the program allows the beneficiaries to improve the quality of their housing and preventing fishers from engaging in illegal fishing during the fishing closures. So we do have, for some of the sites, that we looked at, we can infer that the Seguro Defense is actually preventing IUU fishing, no, the illegal and unregulated fishing. But we need more data. We need more data on the ecological aspects of the fisheries in order to have a more significant statistically results on that. Sebastian, coming back to you, building on that example from Brazil, 
what other public policy strategies, social protection programs are other governments using to tackle the insecurity and risks associated with fisheries? Yeah, Joe, I think uh, one example similar to what Daniela was saying is the saving come relief scheme that India has for small scale fishers to provide relief uh, during monsoon ban uh, on the western seaboard and eastern seaboard. During different uh, periods, they provide social assistance to fishers in exchange for abstaining from fishing. But I think the point I would like to make is that unless the state is investing strongly into resource management, only by giving very rudimentary social protection measures to keep people away from fishing is not going to save the resources. If you just give a fraction of what they would earn from a fishery, and that is not going to be an incentive for people to keep away from fishing. And then you need to have very robust resource management measures to ensure that if you keep people, some people away from fishery, those who remain are able to sustainably harvest the resources. I think that is something where we all often fail you mentioned, you know, you are speaking with trade unions and representatives from cooperatives or at least their peak bodies. What do you hear fishers, fish workers, members of these cooperatives, what do you hear them saying as being their needs or their demands around social protection? Yeah, I think the main point that I keep on raising is the issue of adequacy, that there are maybe a plethora of schemes but not sufficient resources in each of the scheme to feel confident that scheme can look after you in that particular crisis. So therefore, I think that's why I keep on going back to this importance of investing in social protection by the state. Uh, and uh, if the state is unable to do that, we have to find informal mechanisms to play that role. So maybe if there is a large economy and fishery is only 1% of GDP, then maybe the large state can bail out the fishery sector. But if in some of the small island developing states, fishery might be contributing 20, 30% of GDP. So it's very difficult for that sector to look after the needs. So therefore, they too, resource generation may not be enough to look after the social protection needs. So therefore, I think in, in those kind of contexts, we need to think of different arrangements, either some kind of a end on resources, which is earmarked into a fund. And some countries have a fishermen's welfare fund right now, which is created from state contribution. And in India, for example, it also benefits from the fines on fishers for illegal fishing. Uh, these are all ways of looking at it, but at, at least there is recognition of the fact that we need to talk about social protection because uh, there are more accidents happening at sea because of climate change and increasingly fishermen uh, and uh, people on the coast, especially women, are realizing the importance of having some social protection measures. It's not like before when they took it for granted. So I think, therefore, we can maybe think of a new designs as well for beefing up contribution to social protection and community participation in this kind of schemes. I think from a long-term point of view, investing in, in resource management itself is to ensure that social protection mechanism and regimes are not collapsing because they, we need to protect those regimes. We cannot suddenly increase the load on social protection machinery mechanism to bail out a situation which they don't have the resources to spend on. So I think, therefore, it needs a far more uh, a coherent approach from different players to, to ensure that social protection for this sector is beneficial. Thank you. Some really great points there. Daniela Salazar, we've been talking about the social impacts and the need to protect and support and promote the lives and livelihoods of people working in this sector. 
of course, as part of the reason we want to do that is to help manage the environmental impacts to also contribute to the SDG around life under the sea. Is there much evidence to date that these kinds of social measures do translate into environmental or sustainability outcomes? Thanks for your question. I think the evidence at the moment is a bit inconclusive, but not because of negative impacts, but rather because of extreme data gaps limitations. So we see a data gap in terms of socioeconomic data for the fishery sector, as well as on fish stocks. So for instance, when we were working with IBCIG to evaluate the unemployment benefit of fishers, we saw that it does have in some pilot sites the potential to encourage compliance with the program, not with the unemployment benefit. However, when we try to do a more in-depth evaluation of the impact on the resources, the data limitations were really prohibiting to, to have a, let's say, more concrete data. No? I think Sebastian can also attest to this. Social protection measures do have an impact on the sustainability of their resources. They do have an impact on insurance compliance. And overall, if you have that insurance of compliance, you do see an impact on the resource. My point is that if it is a poverty-driven fishing pressure, Maybe social protection can prevent that from exacerbating influence on the resources. But on the other hand, if it is profit-driven, uh, say I have access to bluefin tuna, for example, and then to export to some markets and to make as much money as I could, then I think this link between social protection and resource management perhaps will break. If I am forced to fish because my children are starving, then if I give food to my child, there is not that much pressure on me to spend time in this kind of very hostile environment at sea when everyone is sleeping, I'm working, when everybody is uh, having some leisure time, I'm my work time. So therefore, I think in a poverty-driven situation, social protection can help. But in a profit-driven situation, maybe we need to, again, put emphasis on resource management per se. It's a really important point, of course, that when we're talking about the impacts on the environment, obviously artisanal small-scale fishers are not going to have anything like the impact of large-scale commercial fishers. We would not need social protection if the resources were well, no? So I think we have to think about this also as transition period, no? We hope that the closed season really is a management measure that will be successful in terms of recovering now, recuperating the resources, and therefore fishers will be able to fish again. So I think we have to think this as an also like the graduating, the importance of social protection for graduating from poverty and the importance of resource management for really the sustainability of fishers. No, but they have to come hand in hand, no, because you have to think about the well-being of the communities as well as the sustainability of the resources. If you don't think about in this more integrated way, then most likely resource management will fail. No? And I think Sebastian was, was mentioning very, very well this. Building on that point then, unfortunately, many of these maritime and other environments are not doing so well. We are facing the many structural changes that will come with climate change and the adaptations that need to be made. How are you seeing social protection being used to address some of these vulnerabilities created by climate change and addressing these shocks? How should we be thinking about that for the future? Yeah, I think it's very promising for social protection, actually. And in fact, social protection has been recognized in the context of the framework and also became a, a, an important buzzword uh, in the sixth intergovernmental panel 
on climate change assessment report, which recognizes with high confidence level right, that integrated climate adaptation into social protection programs, including cash transfers and public work programs, is highly feasible and in, indeed increases you know, the resilience to climate change, especially when supported by basic services and infrastructure. You know, so Social protection it provides you know, the mechanisms to support the people and the communities that are facing these risks of disasters. And basically, by raising you know, the capacity of the poor and vulnerable to better prepare for, to cope with, and to adapt to shocks, you know, ensuring that they will not fall deeper into poverty and therefore having the mechanisms and the right tools to, to promoting climate resilience livelihoods. So, rather than taking children or youth uh, out of school in order to for them to support the income of the households. Households then can actually invest in climate-smart agriculture. They can direct their financial assistance to replace boats that they lost during the typhoon or, or repairing the engines or change gears and, and move towards more sustainable gears, no? because now we are talking about social protection, fisheries management, and disaster risk reduction and the coherence. <laughs> so, so, for example, if natural disasters occur, if you have a unified registry system, this can inform governments in terms of which people or communities are the poor and vulnerable, which ones should be targeted. And this could lead to a more efficient action plan that would then trigger more anticipatory action that will better reach you no. Know, the poor and vulnerable. However, again, no, it's being observed that social protection are not available to all. There is an estimate that 4 billion people do not have access to any type of social protection. And if it comes to fisheries and aquaculture sector, data is still scarce. No? So we do have some studies, FAO conducted some studies, for instance, in the Caribbean, no, showing that Caribbean fishery sector, only 3% of vessels are insured. 17% of fishers have access to health care insurance and 20% have life insurance. And again, fishery is one of the most dangerous occupations in the world. So I think really social protection has the capacity to change some of these figures. But again, we need to invest in social protection. Yeah, no, I also would like to draw attention to the fact that the Natural calamities are not just sporadic, it's very frequent. We are still in the mindset that oh, this happens once a year, once in five years. No, it's happening almost every week. So therefore, we need to change the mindset of the administration you know, to think of this as not something which happens uh, in a sporadic manner. It happens on regular fashion. Unprecedented type of urgency is required. I think that's something which is missing and I feel that you know, if some kind of a training program that FAO, ILO, World Bank can give to national administrations to think, you know, in a more coherent manner, they are sitting to finance ministry, sitting with fisheries, with a social protection department or labor department. I think then when they try to exchange, this dialogue can help, and that maybe FAO and uh, ILO and World Bank can facilitate this kind of a dialogue and training program. I feel that very important to the governance uh, part of each country needs a, a, a thorough shake-up because they're still in silos and uh, they need to be sh shaken up so that they see that the threats that they are seeing today are unprecedented. Because see, we have reached the end of uh, development phase of fisheries. If you read the SOFIA report, it's very clear that there aren't any resources to be exploited now. We have to 
manage what we have today. I think what Sebastian's saying is really, really important. I think we're past the point where we just respond to shocks, right? I think we need to really look at social protection as to how do we adapt, how do we prevent from this, this from happening now? And I think this comes exactly from what he's saying in terms of coherence. I mean, how do we link better programs? Right now with Sebastian, we're doing uh, some work on the small island developing states in the Caribbean, African, and Pacific region on really how do we link those early warning systems available with the available social protection systems. And preliminarily, what we've seen is that there are rarely any occasions where they are actually linked. While there are a lot of opportunities where this linkage could be made to anticipate or to have anticipatory action to respond better to shocks and not actually let them have a negative impact on, on fisher households, right? Then also what we were mentioning about registries, how do we better improve the registries and also understand who we are targeting, right? And, and how do we reach those fishers? And then on the other hand, I think we need to look not only in terms of coherence between institutions in the government, but also with informal and informal mechanisms, because a lot of the times those covering the gaps to respond to shocks are informal organizations. So we've seen it, for instance, in the Mediterranean region, a lot of organizations such as mutual societies and cooperatives are the ones that end up covering that gap. Sometimes even through public-private partnerships with the government, they're really helping them either register to existing programs or getting support from the government to implement social protection programs, or sometimes it's just the last resort because they need to respond to a shock, for instance. And so they get together and organize and provide the responses. No, uh, We've seen, for instance, social networks that supporting intermittent lending on a nonprofit basis, and not just for covariate shocks, so not just climate change or, or big disasters, but also for idiosyncratic shocks. So in terms of funeral, deaths, accidents, or even day-to-day -day things. So I think even setting that bridge between what the government is providing, but also how community organizations can better help us reach and address those gaps, I think is something that we really need to think when we're thinking and moving forward in this subject. I fully support what Daniela said about community-based organizations being the front line to deal with all these you know, natural calamities and we should invest in proving their ability to deliver in times of crisis. And then, of course, the state missionary can come in later. So therefore, some kind of a, the architecture of social protection need to be very carefully thought through. And then sequencing who will do what, when. And I think there should be some kind of a you know, proper understanding of different institutions and their role and when they will come in so that they don't wait for others to step in when there's a need. Yeah, and that's why creating the evidence is so important. So, for yeah. instance, if a country wants to create a social protection program for fisheries, if we know more about it, what's working, what's not working, why, it's much easier to provide support in terms of the design of this program in accordance to the needs of the fisheries and aquaculture sector. You know? and, and I think we are more and more trying to do that. And, of course, working together with the communities themselves is key in this process. Just building up what Sebastian and Daniela were saying, especially also on a point that Daniela made earlier about graduation, no, and how we need to see social protection as yes, having social protection floors, but at one point do we graduate from, for instance, social assistance, right? And we move progressively into social insurance or so pension systems, health insurance. I think this is where it's really interesting to really take the time and really delve into and understand what our fishers needs, but also what is a decision-making process that they're doing when it comes to contributing, right? So that we make sure that the programs are sustainable, that whatever social protection programs are proposing are according to their contributory capacity, that they're addressing those barriers that they might have for contributory social protection, you know, and also understand what might be their motivations to continue and having a continuing sustainable density of contributions through is pension systems or health insurance. 
social insurance contributory social protection is fine if you are talking about a commercially viable fishery because there is money for fishers to contribute to such a scheme but if you're talking about a commercially very tenuous type of fishery i think we need to talk about social assistance so therefore again when we talk about the architecture we need to see if i am making good income from fishing then encourage those fishers to move into the contributory uh, regime and if i am in a fishery which is uh, hand to mouth existence and there we should ensure that state is or other formal institutions are providing assistance to the fishers and their communities yes therefore what type for whom i think again the design part i think should also be carefully thought through great points all let's wrap it up there let me thank daniela daniela and sebastian for your time today on the social protection podcast thank, thank you very, you much, very and much and thanks for the opportunity thank you julia appreciate this yeah With me for Quick Wins today, I have Fabio Veras, Research Coordinator at the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Welcome back to the show, Fabio. Thank you, Joe. Well, it was another series, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was last year. It was a while ago. So in the interview we just heard, our guest touched briefly on a Brazilian program called Seguro de Feso, which is a, a social insurance, unemployment insurance program, which is being used to help with natural resource and fisheries management in Brazil. And as Daniela mentioned, IPCIG led that impact evaluation. For those who don't know, IPCIG is a research centre and global forum based in Brazil and established to produce and share research, policy recommendations and best practice among developing countries. And it is also home to socialprotection.org. As it happens, this month, IPCIG is celebrating its 18th birthday. So that's 18 years of research and analysis on social protection and related issues across the global south. Fabio, what have been the highlights for you during that period? I think there are like three highlights that I would say that have marked the IPCIG reputation. So in, in the very beginning of the centre, when we were still in the International Poverty Centre back in 2005, 2006, and 2007, together with my colleagues from IPEA, the Institute for Applied Economic Research in Brazil, we did a comparative study looking at the impact of the conditional cash transfers that were spreading over Latin America, like Bolsa Família in Brazil, Familias de Acción in Colombia, Chile Solidar in Chile, and of course, the well-known Progresa Oportunidades Prospera, at the time it was Oportunidades in Mexico. And we did um, analyze how these programs were impacting inequality. And we found very impressive impacts for, for the four of them, actually. Uh, but what's very influential is that Brazil's conditional cash transfer has a very different targeting mechanism compared to the other programs that use the proxy means testing. So in Brazil, basically, is means testing. So, and what we did show that the targeting, the quality of the targeting of Brazil's conditional cash transfer program was equal, even better than the ones that were using the proxy means testing. So there was no need to change into proxy means testing. And for other countries, it's made them to think that perhaps there is not like a only way of doing things. That was quite influential. The other thing that I was very happy to be involved with as an IPCID project was a project that was supported by GIZ, and in, we did it in Paraguay. 
It was the impact evaluation of the pilot program of the Copuran Paraguay's conditional cash transfer. At the time, it was quite small. Now it's a huge program in the country. So I'm very proud of that study. The result of this program also allowed us uh, to do some advocacy during the transition in the government. So when the government changed, we did use these results and we went to Paraguay to explain what we had found, what were also the challenges of the pitfalls of the program, not only the success and how they could be addressed. So we did support the country and we did support different governments in going forward with that policy that was later on so important in the COVID-19 response in Paraguay. And finally, the third one that I would like to highlight was how it's a very challenging research that we did with uh, UNICEF Yemen. It started in 2011 and it went until 2014. So it was a longitudinal study collecting data in very difficult situation with our local partners. And that data collection allowed us to offer, just before the civil war, a very comprehensive overview of the living conditions of the Yemeni population with a particular focus on child. But besides that, it also allowed us to do an impact evaluation, impact assessment of the social welfare funds, which is a very large unconditional cash transfer that was implemented in Yemen. And again, beyond the impact that we showed of the program, it was very important, the policy process and the dialogue that the findings allowed us to establish with the government. So I remember presenting to the Ministry of Finance and people saying things like that. Look, this money never reached to the poor people. This money leaks before reaching the poor people. And our data was collected at the household level. So we're showing that people do have access to it and people do invest that money in the well-being of the children and their own well-being. So that was something that made me very happy in a very difficult situation because the country was almost facing war. But we managed to talk to different governments to show them how social protection can improve the lives of people. And that, to me, is like the most beautiful thing that IPCID can do is actually to link the expertise of policymakers, but also the rigorous academic evaluation that our researchers can do. Thanks, Fabio. It's um, it's incredible to hear your reflections over the whole life of this institution and all of the incredible work that it's done and also coinciding with a real period globally, you know, starting in Latin America over the last 18 years, two decades, where social protection ideas and programs have, have really spread. When, when did you actually join IPCIG? I joined IPC in March, April 2004. Yeah, I would say that, yeah. There is a life before and life after IPCIG that completely changed my life and the way I see things and the way I see how my knowledge can pay back everything that the Brazilian government has invested in my, in my education and also the opportunity um, to allow other countries to, to develop their social protection system, maybe inspired but not replicating whatever Brazil has done, but inspired by it. I think that's... That's important. And for more on how IPCIG is celebrating its 18th anniversary, go to ipcig.org. Thank you, Fabio, for taking the time to reflect on all this experience and history on the Social Protection Podcast today. 
Oh, thank you, Joe. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this amazing work that IPCIG has done and how it has shaped my career and my life. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at sp underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.